Hello and welcome to the Midrash portion of today's Reunion Roadmap. This is Barry Phillips, and along with me is fellow elder, elder excuse me, Frank Hallitz from Winchester, Kentucky. Frank, I trust that you're well today, even though it's cold, I think, where you are. Yes, yes, we're we're warm enough. Okay, all right, wonderful. Um, Frank, I had a recent conversation with a uh, Orthodox Jewish friend, and uh, and talking about the work of Messiah Yeshua, which he was embracing of and understanding my perspective on that. He did say uh, there is righteousness or redemption, rather, uh, for me in the Torah and the following of the commands. Now, we get into a slippery area here where we're not trying to declare an official B'nai Yosef of North America doctrine uh, about salvation or redemption or righteousness or any of those things. We're discussing uh, some things, and so no one spear us and throw stones at us and bombs. We're talking about these things openly. But he, and saying that, I found this scripture in the book of Deuteronomy or Devarim 6.25, and it is righteousness for us when we guard to do all this command before Yahweh, our Elohim, as he commanded us. Now, the balance of that may be found in Psalms 40 and uh, verse 7, where Yeshua had quoted from when it says, Then I said, See, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is prescribed for me. And Yeshua used that to under, help us to understand that the scroll of the book is writing about him. So perhaps the idea of Moshe saying that there's righteousness for us when we guard to do all this command is that we would find Messiah in the doing of the commands, that one is assumed to present the other. Kind of leads me to a question, which I think you are a very gifted man to help us with. When we talk about terminology like salvation, or being saved, um, redemption, righteous, being righteous, or righteousness, um, are they interchangeable? From the pulpit, they were always interchangeable as far as my pastoral days. But now that we're trying to grasp things more correctly and Hebraically focused, are those types of terms interchangeable? If not, how do we properly understand them? That is a very good question, Barry. And the, well, thank you. <laughs> the, the problem is, is that we've all been speaking Christianese for so long, we don't realize that we don't have any definitions left. Um, there's so many terms that we confuse. Uh, I could give you a list here. Righteousness, redemption, justification, propitiation, atonement, sanctification, being in the covenant, born again, uh, all of these things have come to mean that we're saved. And so all we're talking about is salvation. And that's, that is so confusing scripture that, that we, we read it. And our biggest question is, is do you believe whether you're saved by the law or saved by grace? And, and the answer is clear. The answer is yes. <laughs> and then they go further. Well, what about the work of Yeshua? And you can say yes. 
You know, uh, all of this, because our terms are so melted together that that we no longer know what we're even talking about. So I'm going to throw out a couple of things here to show you that our Christianese definition is not actually an adequate definition. What, what we've done is we've used it in our churches so much that everything's become salvation, and salvation is actually defined as going to heaven. Okay, going to heaven. Can you find that in Scripture? No, no, we don't. <laughs> I, I, did, I did a teaching one time called When We All Get to Heaven, quoting the title of an old church hymn, question mark. And uh, I won't, I'll save that for later. So you go ahead, please. Well, I'll show you, I'll give you an example of how I absolutely know that salvation does not mean uh, going to heaven or eternal life even. Uh, as given in Scripture, um, you know that's that's the uh, mistaken notion because salvation actually means a uh, 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 preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. It has no actual spiritual connotation locked into it in the Greek language, and if it did have that locked into it, it would have something to do with some sort of pagan god because the Greeks were pagans. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not trying to scare us from the term by saying that. I'm just trying to say it, the language is the way people communicate in a particular part of the world, and their surroundings and context is a part of it. So what the Hebrews were trying to do was communicate to the Greek world about their God, and they had to use terminology that was available to them at that time, whereas what we've done today is we have spiritualized certain Greek words to make them fit our doctrinal stance. Now, our doctrinal stance could be right, but the definition is likely wrong when we do that, because the definition is just preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin or loss. So when we go to Romans 9, there is a clear quote in Romans 9.27, he's quoting Isaiah. So when Paul is using Isaiah as a text, does the words, uh, are the words important that are in the Hebrew, or are the words important that are in the Greek? Well, everybody would have a quick answer to that. Of course, it's the meaning of the words in the Hebrew mm -hmm. that are important. So let's read what it says in Romans 9. It says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Okay. So there we have the word saved. It's the word sozo. It's a common uh, Greek word that means saved. And so the remnant, we, we have ideas about what that means too. And so we have this remnant tied with this saved idea, and that, and we're thinking when we read this, it means that this remnant get to go to heaven. Okay? <laughs> okay. Well, let's go back and read the passage he's quoting, because it's Isaiah 10.22. And the passage says in English, translated from the Hebrew, it says, For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. It's the word return 
translating it from the Hebrew. And so the concept here that Paul is discussing is shuv. It's the idea of repentance, yes, but it's idea of also even returning to the land. So here salvation is coming back to the promises that God has made for them because they are being, uh, how let, let's say, they are being delivered from ruin or loss. They lost their land. They're coming back and gaining their land back. Uh, so okay. that's what's being talked about. Well, it is legitimate because when you when you read how they translated the Hebrew into Greek, when they did it in the Septuagint, you find out they used the word save there also, or sozo. Mm-hmm. So it's a legitimate term. In the mind of the rabbis, when they translated it, they were saying that salvation or being saved is having or regaining what was returned to you or what needs to be returned to you. You lost it. So if you lost and, it, you were being in a state of ruin. And right. you need to be rescued from that state of ruin, which fits the terminology that you're talking about. But it's a general term, not a specific Christianese word. Okay. And, and you know, we have uh, righteousness. You see, we have these these little narrow definitions that we want to place on what righteousness is. And, of course, the Christian thing, righteousness is saying that you believe in Jesus. That's how we how we determine uh, how we determine what righteousness is. And the Jew would say, no, righteousness is the keeping of Torah. Uh, and so we have two different terminologies here for righteousness. And the question is, is which is right? Or maybe that's the wrong question. Because when we're trying to bring it down to where there's a Christian versus a Jewish definition, which are both, you know, Jewish ease is no better than Christian ease. <laughs> maybe we need to look at God ease and see what God's trying to get across here. Because when we put these two against each other, we are dramatically confusing the situation. And let's look at Romans. Paul says in Romans, Romans 3, 3.10, he, he makes uh, a, a quote. I won't say that it's actually a quote of what we clearly know in Scripture. But anyway, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Okay. Okay, so nobody's righteous. But then he also says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that's from Romans 4. So right following that, he's talking about righteousness by belief. And then he says there's absolutely none righteous. Well, was Abraham righteous or was he not righteous? Isn't he somebody? Okay, that is a good question. If we're going to put these two things as opposed to each other, we're speaking gobbledygook. You know, I think Ezekiel 33 is a very good chapter to read and get a grasp on what I'm speaking of here and what Paul is speaking of. You see, in verse 12, it says, the righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. You see, 
this righteousness, you can be righteous for a long time and you can sin. And all that righteousness doesn't still make you righteous when you're sinning. And in the same manner, a person can be evil and be evil for a lot of his life. But when he repents, that is seen as righteousness for him. Mm. So it it goes back to the idea that righteousness can be a state that you are in, but you can fall from at any time. So, okay, which is it? Which is it? It's, it's neither. And it's both. That and helps. we have to, yeah. <laughs> and we have to be able to add in that when Yeshua is showing us He's turning us back to right behavior. He is righteousness for us. He is leading us on the path that we should be going. But if we are following the law explicitly to the point that we are condemning everybody else and that we are driving people away from God because of our dogmatic behavior, our righteousness is nothing. Mm. So righteousness without proper fruit is meaningless then. Yes, that's where James goes. When you read James, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. He's saying, no, okay. both are correct, and we still must learn how to focus on both and even bring in other ideas rather than just focus on one. Well, Frank, you have clarified and cleared some muddy water and then stirred up some more from the bottom and... It's interesting to hear the breakdown of the terms and then gain a, a, a scriptural balance to all of that. As a brief recap, what I heard you say was that salvation is more about being delivered and restored, reclaiming that which has been taken from us, escaping that which is doomed or damnation or judgment against us, and righteousness is um, the pursuit of a, a, a righteous living, a, a righteous walk, living in obedience to the commands and exemplifying the heart and the character of Yeshua. Am I somewhere correct in understanding both of those terms? Your, your statement is correct. I, I want to caution you on one of the things you did, though. Okay. That is, is that salvation is preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. Okay. When you add in the word damnation, you've added the spiritual connotation to it that makes us go on a really bad okay. uh, trailer. All right. And so that that scared me a little bit. But <laughs> righteousness, righteousness is morally right or virtuous. Okay. Okay, well, how do we know what's morally right or virtuous? We have it described in Scripture in the first five books. Right. So morally right and virtuous is walking properly according to God's, um, let's just say God's wisdom. His teachings and instructions. 
Correct. Yep. Okay. So I guess one might would then be asking themselves this question. So what is it then that Yeshua came to do for us? Why, why was it necessary for him to come and what has been accomplished in our behalf by him? So if I am a follower of Yeshua, what's, ha- what's happening to me? Well, Yeshua, first of all, has made a standard. I mean, he's set him up, uh, set himself up as the standard. But he is calling us back to uh, a right relationship with God. Okay. He is, he's calling us to that. So what is a right relationship with God? Well, it's following his instructions. It's following his teachings. Uh, so Yeshua is pointing toward the focus that we should be pointing toward, and that is virtuous and morally right behavior, where we're treating our fellow man exactly as we desire to be treated, which really kind of sounds like a statement he made, doesn't it? Mm, it does. Okay, so, so if we are properly acting according to the behavior that God has set as a standard, and he is saying this is the direction that we should be going, then, well, us behaving like that and acting in that way is doing that. You know, a person, let's just say we have a drug addict who is a thief. You know, he's got a steal to, uh, to perpetuate his habit. And if he comes in and say, says, I accept Yeshua as my Lord, but continues on stealing in order to perpetuate his habit, he hasn't changed. Nothing's changed at all. And so to insinuate that now he gets all the rewards of that change when he hasn't changed is craziness. That's why we need to look at that Ezekiel passage again, Ezekiel 33, and read through it. Read from about uh, verse 7 to about verse 20. And I think when we read that, we get an understanding of what James was talking about. We have to act correctly. And uh, and what Paul maybe even be focusing on is, is that we can be righteous all we want to be, but we have not always been and will not always be. Because we're still in the world running into situations that we don't have proper judgment on. Right. And so we're going to be flawed. So God, through his mercy, has made a way for those of us who are flawed to go ahead and be perfected. That's that's in what Yeshua came to do. But that's a really long topic. We're not even going to be able to touch <laughs> it a short period of time. So the individual who has a sinful past, whether it was huge sins, small sins, and they they come to a place where they recognize my life is not measuring up to my creator's expectation or desire for me. I need I need him. They're inviting Messiah to to have dwelling with them to have co- they want a covenant relationship with him. They want this redeeming experience with him. And I know redeeming is another one of those religious words. So 
Bear with right. me. I'm I'm just trying to, to to figure out how to ask this question. How is it that Yeshua is able to change our nature? Um, Rashaul said that if any man be found in, in Messiah, that he is a new creature. How does that new creature change of the individual? I'm not who I used to be. I'm now somebody new. How does that experience work with what Yeshua has done for us? I think the best way to understand that is something Paul was talking about by the two covenants. But it's, again, we've run off on tangents, misunderstanding this subject. Um, If you read in Deuteronomy 10.15, or actually it's 10.16, where it says, it says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Okay, God is telling them, Israel, to circumcise their hearts. But when you get into chapter 30, an interesting interesting thing is mentioned. It says, now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, because we've just had two chapters of of God giving all the curses if you disobey the law and then all the blessings it'll have if you keep the law. So Deuteronomy 30 says, now when all these things come upon you, it's not saying if you do this or if you did that, it's saying you've done both. Now that we know you've done both, and then it talks about you returning to God, which is that idea of of shuv, of repentance, which is called salvation in the New Testament when it when it translates that word. Right. Okay. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, the difference between chapter 10 and chapter 30 is the person who is doing the work. Okay. In chapter yes. 10, chapter 10, you are circumcising your heart. In chapter 30, Yeshua is circumcising your heart. Or, well, it doesn't say that. Anymore. It says the Lord your God. Okay, so now the Lord your God is going to do the work. Now, what happens is, is that when we have been rebels and we have been against God and we've been fighting and we say, Lord, we want you uh, to come into our life and change our heart, we have given him permission to circumcise our heart, or let me word that in another way, to write God's laws on our heart. In other words, we have given him permission to remove our right to choose sin. And when we do that, he obliges. He doesn't do it all at once or we go through shock and all that stuff. But And he starts to work in our life mm-hmm. and he starts to change us. So we have given him permission to change us. But if there is no change, we have not accepted his work in our life. We actually have to watch that change happen. Now, is, this, is this what you're calling... When you when you're referencing the circumcision of the heart, this spiritual action, is this what we're referencing by new birth or being born again? It's what we're referencing by the new covenant. Okay, it's the same covenant, but the new one is God writing it on our hearts rather than us writing it on our hearts. I see. Now, 
this new covenant isn't, okay, the new covenant's for Christians and the old covenant's for the Jews. That's total misapplication. The, the old covenant and the new covenant are the same covenant. Yes, they are. It's just that we have finally come to the realization we can't handle it. And so we ask God to do it for us. It's even with the same people, it says, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But we're not saying that he did it so I don't have to. Correct. We're not <laughs> saying that Yeshua lived his life per per perfectly, therefore I do not have to do any of those things. Right. It's quite the opposite. It's because he lived his life perfectly, he has gained the right to perfect my life, and I give him full reign to do so. Wow. Okay. So when, and I don't know if we have time to deal with this, but we'll try. In Yochanan, or John 3, when Yeshua is speaking to Nicodemus, or to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. A master of Israel and an instructor of Torah didn't understand that concept. What was Yeshua referencing there? He's talking in my way of thinking. I mean, again, this is this is just Frank talking. So you've got to to be able to throw, you know, eat the meat and spit out the bones type thing. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, my idea is it's renewing an old passion. Now. In, in the early stage, it's renewing an old passion. In other words, I desire to do what God wants me to do. And I will aim in the direction of that. It's to make me passionate for God. However, at the end of this time, that new birth is the transformation of perfection. When I go into perfection, and, I, and so you kind of have a beginning stage where my passion is changed and an ending stage where I am fully transformed into that new creature that no longer sins. I have given him the right to remove sin from my life and he has perfected me and now I'm perfect. Now we haven't met those guys yet in this life. We're still p seeing people who die and they're dying because sin isn't a, uh, you know, as long as we're going to be sinning, we're going to be dying. But in the new heavens and the new earth, or even in the millennial kingdom, when God perfects Israel, then at that time, he, he delivers us from having those passions that draw us to sin. So, Frank, as, as you're describing these, these terminologies and right applications, it gives us a lot less room to definitively look at other people and say I'm in and you're out or you're you're not on the same caliber or in the same covenant as me um, it really takes those those guns out of our hands altogether is that right that's correct in fact I I think that that was what it meant by not not uh, judging one another the word there is to condemn. In other words, not, we're not supposed to determine damnation. We are supposed to properly judge whether a person is doing uh, what is right or what is not right. I mean, you know, if he's sinning, then we're supposed to be able to point out you are sinning. But on the other side of it, when it comes to you're going to hell, that's a decision that God did not give us the ability to make. We aren't that wise. 
And so we need to remove ourselves from trying to determine who's going to hell and look at more specific things as, are those people in my congregation sinning according to what's given as God's wisdom? So our, our walk with Messiah does not prevent us from sinning. It certainly gives us a means to deal with those sins, both in ourselves and then we recognize it in others, that there's sinful behavior. We recognize this is detrimental to you. We can address that, but we're not set up as absolute judge in separating wheat from chaff and goats from sheep and heaven and hell issues type thing. Frank, thank you so much for your clarification, for your wisdom, your great insight. Folks, if you have questions for us, uh, comments on this teaching, you can reach us at reunionroadmap at Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Frank. And thank you uh, for listening to B'nai Yosef's radio broadcast, Reunion Roadmap. <laughs>